Good morning, church. We are going to continue on in the book of Romans this morning, so if you want to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Romans chapter 1, you can camp out there in Romans chapter 1. We're going to stay right there the whole time. I had to miss Pastor Mark's sermon in uh, Romans 1 a couple of weeks ago because I was with the kids, and fortunately we record the sermons, and they show up in my podcast feed, and Pastor Mark's sermon showed up in my feed, and it said 39 minutes. And I thought, did the battery on the recorder die? Was the file corrupted in some way? Because I couldn't believe that Pastor Mark had, had shorted his sermon to 39 minutes. So he's putting that Mark 12:20 nickname in jeopardy, I think. But don't worry, I'm, I'm not going to take the time that he left and tack it on to mine today. I promise not to do that to you. So let's just dive in. Romans chapter 1, we're going to read through verses 8 through 17. Romans 1, 8 through 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing... I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, we come before you humbled by the reality of who you are, holy, righteous God, as compared to who we are, sinners. God, we thank you for what you've done in Christ. We thank you that what you did in him makes it possible for us to come here and in your spirit to sing songs to you, to even confess our sins, and to hear your word preached, and to allow the spirit to work in our lives to go and apply it. And so, Father, we pray that that's exactly what would happen now. We pray that your word would go forth, that no uh, idle words would be spoken, that no idle words would be heard that the Spirit would use Romans 1, 8 through 17 to draw us closer to Christ and to prepare us to go and serve a needy world. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this sermon's pretty simple. No three points, no subpoints, none of that stuff. There's one main idea, one point of the entire sermon, and that is this. The gospel is the power of God for 
salvation. So that's the main point. The title, nothing original or creative about that. I just lifted that right out of verse 16. So the entire sermon, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So starting in verse 8, Paul is thanking God through Christ for all of you, so for all of the folks at the church at Rome. This is a fairly typical greeting for a letter like this in Paul's day, but of course it's got a particular Christian flair to it. So Paul is thankful for the Roman church, and he's letting them know. He's thankful for a particular reason. He says, I'm thankful for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And it's true that the Roman church likely had a reputation for the faith that they themselves possessed, And as praiseworthy as that would be, I don't think that that's what Paul is saying here. He's not saying, I'm thankful because you guys are famous for having faith. I think what he's saying here is that the Roman church is pretty good at spreading their faith, at proclaiming their faith. And he's commending them for doing a good job. So not, hey guys, I'm thankful because people everywhere are talking about how much faith you have. But rather, he's thankful that people everywhere are talking about how much faith they've shared. He's commending them not for something that they possess, but for something that they have proclaimed. Remember, Paul didn't start this church. And he started a lot of churches and wrote a lot of letters to those churches. That makes up most of our New Testament. So Paul would plant a church and then he would write a letter to encourage them. But he didn't start the church in Rome. In fact, we're not really sure who started the church in Rome. But he's writing a letter to a church that he's never seen and a people that he's never met. He's heard about them. But remember, this is the first century, so he's not getting the weekly email newsletter happenings at the church in Rome. So what, he's, what he knows, he's heard about by personal testimony of others who are from the church or who have worked with the church. And the word has spread, and he is pleased with what he's heard about the church at Rome. And the way this reads, it's almost like an official commendation from Paul the Apostle. Almost a formality to it. So Paul's life mission is to see the gospel proclaimed in all the world, And the Roman church would know that who he is by this point. He, too, has a reputation. So imagine you're in the church in Rome and you get a letter from the Apostle Paul saying, Good job. You guys are doing what you need to be doing. You're proclaiming your faith. And I'm thanking God for that through Jesus Christ. This is like an official seal of approval from an apostle. This is a big deal. So we don't have a parallel to this. I mean, no offense to the local Baptist Association or the Southern Baptist Convention, but if they send us a letter and they say, hey, Cornerstone, you're doing a good job, then we would be happy with that, but I don't think it's quite the same as it would be coming from the Apostle Paul. So he's saying we're on the same page. My mission, the mission that every Christian should be about, that's the mission that you all are successful in and I approve. So the gospel is the power of God for salvation. That is reflected in the mission of the church at Rome. And Paul is thankful to God for their faith proclaimed all over the world. But we see starting in verse 9 that there's something that Paul wants. He says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his 
Son. This is kind of pointing back to verse 1 of Romans chapter 1, where he says he's set apart for the gospel. So he says that without ceasing, he's praying about the Roman church, but what is he praying for? There's something in particular that he wants, and he's praying, look in verse 10, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He wants to visit. And this is the first century, so he's not hopping in his car, he's not taking a train. Coming to visit is a big deal. So he's telling them, I hear what you're doing is great. I want to come visit. I want to be a part of it. I want to see it for myself. And he gives a few reasons why he's so eager to visit the church in Rome. Look in verse 11. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. So Paul's, Paul's teaching and his preaching is a gift to the church. The very letter that we're studying this morning is the greatest gift that Paul gave, not only to the church in Rome, but to the church throughout history, to us. And he wants to go, and he wants to be with the people of God, he wants to teach them, and he wants to encourage them, but that's not all. Look in verse 12. He wants to go to the church in Rome to be mutually encouraged that he might be encouraged by their faith and that they might be encouraged by his. He longs to see them, to be encouraged by them and to encourage them himself, to spend time with them. He may be an apostle, but he's not a superhero. He needs the church as much as they need him, and he loves them. He loves the body, and he loves community with fellow believers. This is the power of God for salvation on display in the community of the church, that Paul the Apostle longs to be with them. And remember, it wasn't that long ago that he longed to kill all of them. He was a Jew whose job was persecuting Christians. The work of God is so clearly on display in the life of Paul that such a dramatic turnaround has taken place in his life. But that power of God for salvation is on display again in the people of the Roman church in a different way. Look at verse 13. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. That in and of itself is astounding. And we're definitely going to get to that as we continue uh, going through the book of Romans. And so there are Gentiles in the Roman church. But the very fact that that's available, that salvation is available to them is astounding. And reminder, this is, I feel like this comes out every time I preach a sermon. We're all Gentiles, so we appreciate this. But he's not just talking to the Gentiles in the church. When he says all of you in verse 8, he's addressing the Gentiles and he's addressing the Jews. And this too will become clearer as he deals with some of the tensions uh, in, there in the church as the book of Romans unfolds. The dynamic there in the church is interesting because we know from Acts 18.2 that the emperor Claudius, the Roman emperor Claudius, had actually kicked the Jews out of Rome for a time. And the reason that he kicked them out, history tells us, is because of fighting in the synagogues over Christianity. 
So the Gentiles seem to have thrived in the Roman church during the Jews' absence. And they come back into the church and they are doing church together. They are one community of Jews and Gentiles. So the fact that salvation had come to Jews and the Gentiles and they were worshiping together is a clear demonstration of the power of the gospel. But it does seem as though Paul was primarily interested in ministering to the Gentiles in the church at Rome, both from what we see here in verse 13 and he says in verse 14, he says, I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. He's, he's the apostle to the Gentiles and he's charged with reaching the Gentiles. And Rome was the center of the Gentile world. There was no better place for Paul to go if he wanted to reach Gentiles. And when he talks about Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish, those are both Gentiles, but he's saying that he wants to reach both the cultured and the uncultured. So he was an equal opportunity evangelist spanning the socioeconomic spectrum with the Gospels. And then finally we see in verse 15, Paul is eager to preach the Gospel to all who are in Rome. He wants to preach to the Jews, mostly to the Gentiles. He wants to preach to the church and he wants to preach to the lost. Both need to hear the gospel, the church, in order to be encouraged and the lost in order to be saved. But notice that he's eager to preach. His life's work is to preach the gospel and he's eager to go to Rome to do just that. And he says something about obligation in verse 14, but the tone here is not one of some forced duty. It's one of eager longing and desire to see Christ's name spread. So Valentine's Day was an opportunity of uh, loving obligation for me. On the one hand, if I had told my wife, hey, here's your gift, had to do it, probably would not have gone over very well. If, on the other hand, I had told her, you know what, my love is so free of obligation that I thought it was silly to celebrate this day, so I didn't buy you anything. That probably would not have gone over so well either. So that middle ground of loving obligation is where Paul finds himself. Certainly he had a duty to spread the gospel, but he certainly loved doing it and was eager to do it. Okay, so that's Romans 1, 8 through 15. Way too quickly. Remember, main point of the sermon. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. So whatever that is, we see that it's had an effect on Paul and the church. But what exactly does that mean? We've looked at some of the effects of the power of the gospel, but we haven't actually defined the gospel or handled it directly. So now let's turn to verses 16 and 17. There's a chain in this passage that starts with Paul wanting to visit. Why does he want to visit? Because he's eager to preach the gospel. Why is he eager to preach the gospel? And here it is, and this is what the entire book of Romans centers on. Verses 16 and 17. For I am not Ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, and he quotes Habakkuk 2 4 here, 
The righteous shall live by faith. There's a ton here to unpack, and we're going to do a little bit of that. But don't miss the simple argument that he's making. It's like a chain where each link is crucial. So why does Paul want to visit? Because he's eager to preach the gospel. Why is he eager to preach the gospel? Because he's not ashamed of it. Why is he not ashamed of the gospel? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Why is the gospel the power of God for salvation? Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And why is that a big deal? Because Habakkuk 2.4 tells us that the righteous shall live by faith. There's an assumption here. The assumption here is that you want to be righteous. That righteousness is something to be desired. And why might that be? Why is it that righteousness is something to be pursued? Why do we even care? Is it something that has value in and of itself? Or is righteousness a means to an end? Why don't we just live our lives doing what we want, eat, drink, be merry? Well, there's a very clear answer to that. And I'm not going to dwell on this too much because whoever is preaching next is really going to unpack this for us. But if you look at the first verse of the next passage, Romans 1, 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. So there it is. Why do we care about righteousness? We should, why, why is it something that we should pursue? It's not because righteousness has value on its own, but because without righteousness, we get the wrath of God. We get judgment. The God of the universe, the one who created everything, the one who sustains creation by the power of his word, that God is a holy God, a righteous judge. And believe me, we don't want it any other way. We get this. We are made in the image of God, and we have little glimpses of some of God's attributes in us, like his justice. We like justice. I mean, not usually for ourselves, but, you know, we like justice for other people. So when I'm driving down the road in the right-hand lane doing the speed limit, and somebody blows past me going 90, my response is, where are all of the police? Why don't they ever catch these guys that are driving around like maniacs? But of course, if I get pulled over, my response is, you know, there are just too many cops out. They're trying to hit their quota at the end of the month. But in all seriousness, we want justice. The desire for justice is something that is ingrained in us, and God is just. He's also holy. And when you put those two things together, righteous judge and holy God, you have a God in the presence of whom sin cannot stand. So why do we care about righteousness? We should care about righteousness because we want to be with God and righteousness is a prerequisite for being with God. And on the flip side of that, unrighteousness gets wrath. It gets eternal 
judgment. Okay, so we got to be righteous. The problem is we're not righteous. Somebody's going to flesh this out for us in a couple of months when we get to Romans 3.23, but it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's just one verse, but the testimony of all of Scripture is that we are all, every one of us, sinners. The Bible clearly teaches this, but you don't need the Bible to make that assessment. If you have even a little understanding of history, you know that man is wicked. You don't even need history. Turn on the news. Man's sinfulness is on display in our headlines every day. But if we're perfectly honest, we don't need any of that stuff. If we just engage in a little bit of honest self-reflection and self-assessment, then what's up here and what's in here can only be assessed as sinful, not righteous. So righteousness is a prerequisite for being with God, but we're not righteous. So what is it that we do? That's the question. So we've asked that question. Now we're on the same page as Paul, and we can come at Romans 1, 16 and 17 with those assumptions. We are sinners who need to be righteous. And now we can see what it is that Paul is after. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. What is the gospel? If the fact that we're unrighteous sinners is the bad news, then the gospel is the good news. In fact, the word gospel simply means good news, right? So the good news is that, if we check out Romans 1, 3 through 5, the good news is God's Son descended from David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name. God's Son came in the flesh as a man in power and in holiness, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, the last sacrifice that ever needed to be made once for all, that the sins of mankind, my sins and your sins, might be forgiven. He was resurrected from the dead, cementing his glory, and we have received grace from him. That's the gospel. That's the good news, that Christ came and died, that unrighteous sinners like us might be reconciled to a holy God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel saves. Christ's sacrifice on the cross saves us from our sin. It saves us from our unrighteousness, and it saves us from the wrath of God. So how does this work? Everybody's saved? Believe in universalism? No. There's a qualifier here in verse 16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Only those who believe will be saved. Salvation is available to anyone who hears the gospel 
but only those who actually believe it are saved. And this is actually better translated, more literally translated as to everyone who is believing. So it's a continuous action. It's not a I believe sometimes or I believed many years ago. It means that you believe right now and you believe tomorrow and you believe next year. But what does it mean to believe? Paul is using belief here in verse 16 and faith in verse 17 interchangeably. So when he says believe here, what he means is have faith. Saving belief is more than intellectual assent. So faith is more than merely knowing something. You can say, I believe the facts about Jesus' life, and I believe some of the stuff in the Bible, but that's not the same thing as faith. Certainly you have to believe. I mean, if you reject the facts of the gospel outright, then you're not going to have faith. Belief is a necessary condition for faith, but it is not a sufficient condition for faith. You have to believe to have faith, but intellectual belief by itself is not enough. So let me give you an illustration to this point. Let's say I tell you that I believe in parachutes. And I can tell you all the physics of how they work. I can explain the different fabrics and the cords and the packs. And I can tell you all about terminal velocity and all the famous skydivers. I believe in parachutes, but I don't actually believe in parachutes. I haven't actually put my faith in parachutes until I strap one on my back and jump out of an airplane. So believing here how things work is not the same thing as trusting in a parachute. So somebody comes up to you and they say to you, I'm a skydiver. And you say, oh, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. How many jumps have you made? And the person says, oh, no, I haven't actually jumped out of a plane. I, I, I took a course and I got a certificate and I wear my little parachute necklace and, and I bought a parachute and sometimes I'll strap it on and wear it around the house, but I've never actually jumped out of a plane. So what would you say to that person? You would say to that person, you're not a skydiver until you've actually, you know, dived into the sky. Okay? So someone who has never jumped out of a plane is not a skydiver, no matter how much they can tell you about and no matter how much they tell you they love parachutes. So you see what I'm after here. Faith means putting your trust in something and leaning on something. If you say that you believe in Christ, but you haven't trusted him with your life, you are not a Christian. If you wear a cross around your neck, but you haven't laid your life down at the foot of the cross, you are not a Christian. Being a Christian means being about what Christ is about. It means following His commands. It means loving what He loves and doing what He did. If that is not the mark of your life, then you are not a Christian. This is a problem that is fairly unique 
in our culture, this sort of idea of casual belief. In other parts of the country, and especially in other parts of the world, even making a profession of faith, simply claiming that you're a Christian, has significant consequences. And if you're in a country that persecutes Christians, to go back to my illustration, you strap on the parachute and they throw you out of the plane. And those people have no choice but to trust in Christ because Christ is all they have. But that's the thing. We don't have anything other than Christ either. That we think we do is an illusion. So every other thing you could possibly put your ultimate trust in will collapse under that burden. There is only one God and no other thing can save you. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. And what does this power do? Well, it's for salvation. It saves. It's right there. But what is the evidence of this power? The evidence of salvation. The evidence of this power is repentance and obedience. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-5 For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. And how do they know? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The gospel is the power of God for salvation and the evidence of that salvation is that there is conviction and change. Not only in word. Christians don't just believe the gospel intellectually. We put our trust in it. It is powerful. Power brings about change, and change means turning from sin and turning to God. Paul isn't ashamed. He's screaming this from the rooftops. He's not ashamed of the gospel as someone who has experienced the power of the gospel himself. It changed him. He was going around persecuting Christians, and now he is a Christian. He's not ashamed of that reality. Why does he feel it's necessary to say that? Well, it's not directly right here in this passage. But why, why, why might we be ashamed of the gospel? Well, the gospel, it can be offensive. So if you're eager about the gospel, like Paul was, you're going to offend someone. Sharing the gospel necessarily means telling someone that they're not good enough, that there's something wrong with them. Maybe you're afraid to say that to someone. I mean, fair enough. That's a hard thing to say to someone. But what we're really sharing is not the bad news, but the good news. Many so-called Christians are perfectly happy to sit up on their high horse and judge the sins of others. But that's not what being a Christian is about. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we leave sin alone. Far from it. We call it out where we see it. But we don't walk around pointing out sin or silently judging people without telling them the good news. We're not beauty pageant judges <clears throat> telling people why their evening gown doesn't flatter or why they botched <clears throat> the talent competition. 
We're doctors. We are diagnosing a terminal illness and we are telling people about the cure. Any believer who is sharing the gospel is himself a sinner saved by God. We can't be arrogant about that because we didn't do anything. All we're saying to others is, I need Jesus and so do you. Let me tell you about him. Paul was not ashamed of this reality and we shouldn't be either. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. How? How does the gospel save? What does it reveal? Look at verse 17. It reveals the righteousness of God from faith for faith. What, is, what exactly does this mean? Does it mean that it, something is revealed to us that previously wasn't? I mean, it's certainly true that before God opened our eyes to the truth, Before he does that, we won't be able to understand it. But that's not really what this is talking about. What this means is that God's righteousness is revealed in our justification and in our sanctification. From faith. Our faith is counted to us as righteousness. Remember, God's standard is righteousness. That's what we need. We want to be righteous. And if we have faith in Christ then Christ's righteousness is what God sees when he looks at us. Philippians 3.9 tells us that we exchange any attempt at our own righteousness and we take on the righteousness that comes from Christ and depends on faith. You cannot do it. There is nothing that you can do to attain righteousness. You can't earn your way to God. You can only lean on the righteousness of of Christ. <clears throat> I looked at my Jesus fair and I had to circle this. One of the verses that we sang this morning, my Jesus pure was crushed by God, by God in judgment just. The father greed yet turned his rod on Christ made sin for us. That is saying much more eloquently than I did exactly what I just said. We take on the righteousness of Christ. You think we would sing? The, we're singing these songs on purpose, and that somebody actually looked at the text before they picked the song. I don't know. It's crazy. So this is the faith that justifies. Justification is a legal declaration. Remember, God is a righteous judge, and justification means that God pardons the sin of the faithful based on the obedience of Christ. And this happens the very moment that you put your faith in Christ. You are immediately accounted righteous before God. You don't get credit for this. You get credit in the sense that you're saved, but Christ is the one who actually did the work. Christ is the source of both your faith and your righteousness. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith. We don't add anything to what Christ has done by having faith. We simply receive the righteousness of Christ. He did it. We receive it. But the righteousness of God is also revealed for faith. God also sanctifies us. He continually makes us holy. He makes us better. 
He doesn't just say, okay, I've wiped out all your past sins and given you a clean slate and now you're on your own. He saves us and he keeps on saving us. Sanctification is a lifelong process whereby God is making us more holy. He's making us more like Jesus. Saving faith will demonstrate itself by producing good works in those who are saved. And note here what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that good works save you. Again, you can't do anything to earn your salvation, but if you're saved, your life will reflect the fact that you're saved. Scripture is clear. It doesn't make any sense to claim to have faith without demonstrating that by turning away from your sin. Of course, this doesn't mean we're perfect. It just means we're getting better. The trend line for our lives should be progressively moving towards holiness and Christ-likeness and away from sinfulness. And by the grace of God, any of us who have been believers for a long time should be able to say, I'm not the same person that I was five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Growth in holiness is the mark of any true Christian. I think this is part of what the Habakkuk 2.4 quote is about. The righteous shall live by faith. There's no righteousness without faith. But we also know there is no faith without righteousness. If there's no righteousness without faith, it means that you can't do it on your own. Good works are not going to save you. But if there's no faith without righteousness, that means that you can't claim faith without demonstrating righteousness. 1 Peter 2.24 says, Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Justification and sanctification are fancy theological terms that together encompass what it means to be saved. The righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith. That righteousness has been revealed in Christ and bought for us by His work. It both gives us faith and it sustains our faith. The power of God for salvation. So, moving towards a close, I see here three groups of people to whom this message could apply. First, there are the people who've rejected Christ outright. You've heard about righteous God, you've heard about your sin, you've heard about Jesus, but you hear all these things and you say, no, you know, I don't believe any any of that. I think it's fake. I think it's all made up. Fair enough. I'd love to, and I know there are several others here who would love to sit down and talk about that with you. We can tell you about why historically we think the Bible is reliable. We can make our case for why we think the resurrection actually happened. All that stuff. But at the end of the day, whether or not you personally believe that this stuff is true has absolutely no bearing whatsoever on whether or not it is. Your belief doesn't make it true or false. So ask yourself this question. What if it's true? If it's true, and obviously I believe that it is, then you 
who have rejected it are in deep, deep trouble. You need Jesus. You need the power of God to work in your life for salvation. What if it's true? The second group of people to whom this message applies are the faithful. You put your hope and faith and trust in Christ and He is your everything. And I'm primarily speaking to my fellow church members here. If Paul could write a letter to Cornerstone Baptist Church, what would he say? Would he say, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Would he see in us that we are eager to preach the gospel? Would he see in us the power of God for salvation, that the truth of the gospel has worked in us so profoundly that he could offer us the same praise that he offered the church at Rome? And if not, why not? The third group of people to whom this message applies are those who have belief, but not faith. And this, in my mind, is the most dangerous group to be in. You make yourself feel secure by saying, oh, absolutely, I believe. But you haven't actually put your faith in Jesus. And I hope I've made a case today for why that's a big problem. If you believe, but you don't have faith, you are not saved. You may not have rejected the basic truth of who Christ is, but you have rejected Him as your Lord, which means you have rejected Him just as much as those who don't even believe. Ultimately, you're not any different. So how do we know where we fit into these groups? I'll close with a little thought experiment. Imagine if you woke up tomorrow and somehow it was definitively proven that God didn't exist, that everything in the Bible is just false. Now look, obviously I don't think that this is possible, but it's a hypothetical. Just think with me. What if it happened? What if you woke up and you knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that all of this stuff was not true? How would that change your life? How would you feel about that? Would you say, wow, that's an interesting headline. What's for breakfast? Would you say, well, yeah, I mean, I guess that shifts around some things in my life, but I'll manage. If the answer to this question is anything other than I would be absolutely wrecked, the very foundation of my life would crumble. I would be completely done for, utterly devastated. If that's not the answer to the question, then you don't know Jesus as your Lord and you desperately need Him today. Let's pray.